Well, it is a joy to be back, and we knew it was going to be special coming back, but I wasn't prepared for how emotional it was going to be coming back. Had the opportunity at the beginning of the service to sit with the prayer team, praying for the services, and filled with friends that I had known for decades, praying for me. The emotion just came because this is so special. And then in each service, to be able to look out at faces of people that I have walked with and journeyed with in ministry and your pain and your struggle is bringing back those stories and the blessings it is to be here is wonderful. It is hard to believe that it's been three years since we left. So three years have been great. It has been a wonderful experience for us at New Hope. But about a year and a half ago, you may have caught wind of something that we experienced up in Rockford that was really difficult at New Hope. It was this little thing called covid And I think you guys faced it as well. I mean, it was a challenge to walk through something like that, and yet the Lord gave us a year and a half of getting our feet wet, so to speak, in ministry there before that hit. But it was much more than that year and a half. I really sensed that the Lord had given us decades here at Calvary to pour into us, to strengthen us, to prepare us for all that the Lord is calling us into next. And the Lord's been blessing. It's been an encouragement, but wow, it is wonderful to be back. And I am so grateful to be here. But as life goes, we walk through hardships and difficulties, don't we? The difficulties of life are COVID-related and other challenges and various things. And so God brings us through these challenges because he wants us to go through them. Athletes know this very well. You've got this adage of an athlete, no pain, no gain. We've heard that one. I saw a t-shirt recently that said pain is weakness leaving the body. You know, it's this idea of becoming stronger and yet you go through the sufferings to do that. Now, I'm a bit of an athlete, but don't let my arms fool you. They're not as strong as they look. Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, this guy must be able to bench press a ton, but I can't, and here's why. Because I've heard that in order to get stronger, you actually have to rip the muscle. And as you rip the muscle it then heals back bigger and stronger. But I'm guessing that the ripping of the muscle hurts. And it does because that's the painful part of going through the the sufferings and the challenges. And we know this in our spiritual journey, that God brings us through sufferings and difficulties intentionally to make us stronger. And what we're going to experience this morning is not just God wanting to do it into our lives, but him inviting us in that we would intentionally walk with him into that suffering so that we can experience all that the Lord wants to do in and through our lives as a result. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. The journey that Jesus has been on is nearing the end. And Jesus in this passage is going to say, I am walking toward Jerusalem. And he's been doing that for quite some time when we come to this story in Matthew chapter 20. He knows what's waiting for him. His life has been geared up toward this, and Jesus is making his way there to suffer. And he's about to tell his disciples yet again the reason why they're going there. And this is now the third time he's explaining it to them because Jesus wants their hearts to understand that the calling that you are on with me is a calling to suffer. And there is pain ahead, But God's goodness as a father is going to flow into us through that. So in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, it says this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. 
and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem, and he's conveying that to them. But Jesus has had a lifetime of processing what it was that he was here on earth to do. And as you read through the flow of this narrative, he gets to the very closing line in verse 28 that says, I have come that I may give my life as a ransom, a ransom to death for many. That's why Jesus came. That's why he's telling them over and over, this is what we're here for. This is why we are walking to Jerusalem and this is the pain that we are going to face. Now, this isn't catching Jesus by surprise. He has known for a very long time that he was going to go to a cross in Jerusalem. In fact, this is how long it is that he knows. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says this, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before you and I were even on the scene, before we'd been created, before we had fallen, Jesus knew that this was the plan from the Father that a grace would be given through Jesus Christ to those undeserving, and the way to do that was going to be death. And Jesus carried this with him his entire life. I mean, when he's 12, we see Jesus kind of getting away from his parents, and his parents are trying to track him down. When they finally find him, they're asking him, what in the world were you doing? And this is his response to them when he says this in Luke chapter 2, I had to be in my father's house, but if you had turned there, you would see in your NIV text that there's a footnote that says this, or it could be translated, I had to be at my father's business. Jesus knew from the very beginning that his life was to be doing exactly the business that the Father had from him for him. And so he needed to be close to the Father in every way, in his temple, praying to him late at night, all night, early in the morning. He was with the Father because he wanted to do the Father's business. And what was that business? To go to the cross. And so he's telling his disciples, this is why we're going to Jerusalem. This is what we are experiencing and what we are facing probably noticed a phrase that was repeated in two different ways, but it's a similar phrase. In verse 18, it says, he will be delivered over. And then in verse, uh, was it 18? And then in verse 19, it says, he will be handed over. It's the same phrase. And what that is, is it's an Old Testament construct that Jesus is borrowing. And as soon as he mentioned that phrase, these young Jewish men and women who were following him who knew the story of the Old Testament would hear that phrase and they would know what it means. What it means is handing one over to judgment and consequences of sin. This is what was said about the nation of Israel over and over again. They're handed over. They're being sent into the judgment for their sin. And so Jesus borrows that very phrase, applies it to his own life. And so it's so much bigger than just he's going to be handed over to the religious rulers so that he's going to be handed over, delivered over to the Roman government. This is so much bigger than that. Who's actually delivering Jesus over? It's the Father. The Father is taking his very life and delivering him into the judgment and the wrath of the consequences of the sins of the world. And Jesus is carrying that weight with him. Now, you and I know this at smaller levels, don't we? 
the anticipation of something that we dread that's coming into the future. For some of you, it's going to the dentist. And so you're like, you get that dentist appointment on the calendar and immediately the anxiety hits and you're like, that's not something that I'm looking forward to. It's drawing ever nigh. And you're like, can I get rid of this appointment? And it might be a medical surgery, something bigger than that. Some of you are facing that at work right now. You've got this job that's difficult. They're putting the screws down and you've got this meeting in particular that if this meeting doesn't go well, my job career might not go well. You, you might be in a place where you're dreading that drive even to work and there's just weight that you're carrying on your shoulders. Have you had that conversation that was coming that you knew you had to have with someone that you love that was going to be really difficult? that conversation that you had to say that hard truth to them, but in so doing, this might actually hinder and change the relationship for a very long time. And so you've dialed that number halfway about three times, and then you hit the red button that says cancel, because you're like, there's just this weight, there's this shadow over you of this. And those small scales, we've experienced the emotion of that. Jesus carried that burden his entire life. And as he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, it's getting heavier and heavier. There's a great painting I discovered years ago by a guy named Holman Hunt. And he entitled this painting, The Shadow of the Cross. And here you have Jesus, 20, 25, somewhere in the vicinity of doing his carpentry work. And he's put in a fairly long day at work. And you see the, 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 the shadows are getting longer. The light's coming in. He's got all of the wood chips on the floor. He's put in a tough day. Uh, in this painting, uh, the depiction of his mother is down there looking in the chest that still had the treasures from the Magi. And what she does is her head catches a shadow that's been placed on the back of the wall of the carpentry shop. And what is it as Jesus is stretching? You see the toolbar going across, making the form of a cross beam. And you see the shadow of a cross in behind Jesus. What Jesus was facing his entire life was the imminent coming of his death. And he lived in the shadow of the cross his entire life. And he's trying to bring his disciples along. He's saying, guys, this is what we're heading to. You are with me. We are going to suffer together, but this is the reason that we came. And so Jesus, having just poured out his heart with this prediction, the kind of pain that should leave everyone silent and speechless, just sitting in the weight of it, we then see what happens in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Well, what is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant me that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Okay, so amidst all of this pain, all of this weight that Jesus is carrying, you've got this mother who shows up on the scene. She's been walking. She's heard Jesus and she's like, wow, that is heavy. I mean, that is just deep. Well, anyway, I got a question for you. Do you mind if my two sons are elevated to the highest place of all of eternity over every other human to ever exist? I mean, just out of left field, this mom comes in and makes this request amidst the shadow of the suffering and the cross. 
we see this mom just kind of helicopter in, making things right for her boys. Now, before we point fingers at the mom, it's not like these two sons are back there trying to fade into the background, cringing at their mom, kind of giving Jesus one of these, no, we don't really, no, this is all on her. No, listen to how Jesus responds when he says to her, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to whom? Them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. So these boys, these two sons, are right in the mix with their mom, so much so that when Mark overlays the account of this, he doesn't even mention the mom. He sees these two sons as being very complicit in this. They're potentially even putting their mom up to this thing. I mean, they're the guys behind this thing saying, we want to sit at your right and your left for all of eternity. Now, these, these boys are brash. We know their story because Jesus has walked with these guys for a while. And he comes to a season where they're walking through Samaria and Samaria actually denies Jesus access. And Samaria says, no, we're not going to have anything to do with you as a Jew. And these two sons of Zebedee, James and John, show up to Jesus. And this is what they say to him in Luke chapter 9. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? What Jesus did in that scene is he named these two brothers the sons of thunder. And it wasn't for no reason that he named them the sons of thunder. I could could just picture Jesus after they said that, put a little smirk on his face, and he goes, hey, great idea. Why don't we then dump them with some hail after that? And why don't you whip up a tornado for good measure? I mean, Jesus had to rein in these guys all his ministry. And before we give Peter too much credit for being the arrogant brash ones, Let's not forget that we've got two sons here entitled the Sons of Thunder who wanted to elevate themselves above everyone else. So now here Jesus is trying to tell them just the opposite. We're coming to suffer, but you're wanting to elevate yourselves to the seats at my right and my left. But here's how Jesus lovingly does it. He redirects the conversation. Basically, he says... Let's keep all the seating arrangements in the future to the Father in some other time. But right now, I'm calling you to do something different. And so in redirecting that, here's what Jesus says. He redirects them and says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. What Jesus is saying is, he could have crushed them. He could have said, oh, yes, There's some seats at the right and my left, but right now you have both just disqualified yourself from ever being a part of it. In fact, we're moving on to Jerusalem and you guys are staying here. He could have crushed these guys and said, no, we're done. You don't know what I'm going to and you're clearly not capable of coming along with me into this. But what does Jesus do instead? He invites them in deeper. He says, guys, I want you to come And I am going to drink this cup and I want to give it to you so that together we can drink from this cup of suffering and I want to invite you in further. And this is the invitation that Jesus is giving each one of us. He's inviting us to enter into this suffering that we will experience in life, but a suffering that he's saying is ours to have. And when Jesus uses this drinking the cup, we know exactly what he means. 
Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to use that metaphor for the intense suffering he is about to face. And he actually offers that cup for them to participate at some level with the sufferings that he is walking through. Notice how a couple of the New Testament passages put it. Take, for instance, Philippians chapter 3 first. Paul says it this way. I want to know Christ. Every fiber of his being, he says, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and this, the participation in whose sufferings? His. Paul wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him even in his death. Now, Paul goes one step further in Colossians chapter 1 by describing it this way. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Here's what Paul understands this cup to be, that every time we suffer, we have the privilege of suffering Christ's sufferings. And that as we do, our sufferings are actually going to put Christ on display. That we are going to magnify him because as people watch us suffer with a closeness to Christ, they're going to be pointed to the sufferings of Jesus for them for their salvation and the ransom of their lives. And so you and I, James and John, we're all tied into this. Jesus is not offering us a cup that says, you drinking this is going to provide salvation for the world. Instead, he's saying, you drinking this cup and suffering with me is going to identify yourself with the Christ who has provided salvation for the world. And in so doing, what an invitation that he's calling these two brothers into. And yet, we choose not to drink it because of how hard it is. What's amazing about the grammar of this passage is that it tells us that the drink the cup, can you drink my cup, is actually in the middle voice. If you know the grammatical construction of a middle voice, it's a combination of passive and active. So Jesus is tying them together with this one statement saying, you are going to face sufferings that's going to come at you that you have no control over. You're going to face the illnesses. You're going to face the insults. You're going to face the unjust treatments. And as you do, that is a passive opportunity to suffer along with me. But it's also in the middle voice, meaning there's also active aspects to it, that Jesus is inviting these two brothers to actively pursue a life of suffering to identify ourselves with our Lord. And in so doing, you and I can look at our lives and say, Lord, how can I actively enter into your sufferings? That every time something passive comes toward us, that instead of begrudging it and being discouraged by it, we say, Lord, I will rejoice because this is an opportunity for me to suffer alongside you. You look at your resources and you take all of your money that you have, all of your money that you have, and you say, God, you take it and use it. And will you use this in the life of others? And then I step back and go, now I don't know how I'm going to face what I need to face. But what you are doing is you are willingly taking the comforts of your life and setting them aside so that you can actively enter in to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ to put his sufferings on display. It's a hard assignment. And the brashness of those brothers was we can drink your cup. 
but we know that suffering is difficult and hard. A number of years ago, Katie and I had the privilege of hearing Johnny Erickson Tata speak. You know her story? Johnny's story is a tragic one, where as a 17-year-old girl, she dove into water that was too shallow and found herself paralyzed. From 17 years old on, she faced a life of paralysis. Now, as she was telling her story, she was pulling us into the pain of what those first few months were like for her. When she wakes up to discover that she's paralyzed and she's still laying in a care facility in her bed, and day after day, those first few months, agonizing with the reality that she will never walk again, all of her dreams have been dashed, and she started to say that she was just losing hope in every way. She said there was a point where she wanted to just end her own life, but she was so powerless, she couldn't even do that. All she could do was sit there and weep. And she said in one evening in particular, she recognized that it was so late that she was about to weep that she said, I can't move my arms to clean off everything that's going to come out of my face when I weep. I'm that powerless, I don't even want to weep anymore. I mean, we hear a story like that, and in some ways we go, wow, we just, could we ever identify with a pain like that? But the reality is that you can. Some of you have experienced the heartache of a spouse telling you they no longer want to be married to you. And as they walk away, you find that you are powerless to do anything about it. And as you are alone in your bed, weeping and begging God to make a change, you find that there's nothing that you can do but simply weep in your pain and your heartache. Some of you I know have faced the loss of a loved one, even the loss of a child to death. And in so doing, you know the weight that comes over you when you face that. The emotion is so heavy that you struggle to even take your next breath. You faced it. The heartache and the pain is there. Some of you right now are going through a job loss. And you're looking at the income being decimated and the savings account on its way down there, if not already there. And you are powerless to do anything to provide for you and your family. And you're just begging God at night, provide something, Lord, because I can't find what it is. You know the pain and the agony of what suffering brings. And the Lord is saying in that, I want to invite you to experience my sufferings because I will show the world through your pain and your heartache the way that I died for them as a ransom for their lives. What's interesting about this story is the proximity of this story to the cross. Take a look at chapter 21. What does chapter 21 start with? It starts with the triumphal entry. So what does that mean? They're about a day away from the triumphal entry, and how far away is that from the cross? One week. So Jesus is telling them, we're almost to Jerusalem, and I want you to suffer with me, and in one week, you're going to have the opportunity to drink of this cup that I would have for you. We know that these brash brothers were faced with an opportunity in the garden to embrace that cup. First of all, the guys fell asleep. I mean, they couldn't, even, they couldn't even stay awake long enough to agonize with Jesus in his sufferings and his prayers. But the moment the soldiers came, what happened to James and John? Boom, they were gone. I mean, they just, they just left. 
Now, to John's credit, John circles back around from a distance. John gets to a place where, okay, he took off, he was running, the disciples scattered to wherever. He finds Peter and he says, hey, you know what? I've got an inn at Caiaphas' house. Let's go there and let's go watch the trial. So John was willing to come within earshot, but boy, let's keep our distance because this could really go bad for us if we get too close. And he watches the trial. You get a sense that John then followed the trial as it went on, eventually in the caravan with Jesus, carrying his cross, following in the crowd, but definitely not close enough for the soldiers to ask him to carry the cross beam. Then as Jesus gets to the cross, John is, John is around. He sees Jesus fully crucified, and when it's all over, John decides to get close enough to the cross where he can hear the conversations and he can actually be talked to by Jesus. And so here you have John standing at the cross after all this is gone. And he actually starts to hear one of the thieves malign and accuse Jesus, starts slandering him. I mean, John's potentially listening to this. I mean, he's a son of thunder. I mean, he's not going to put up with this. So he starts to hear this. I could just almost hear him just seething inside as he hears this thief maligning Jesus. Almost says, how dare you? I mean, if I was hanging there on his right, I would tell. And then he looks to the other side and he sees another man hanging on Jesus' left. And then he hears the conversation and Jesus is up there. And one of his last statements, he looks to one of the men on his left and on his right. And he says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. Could you imagine at that moment, John potentially realizing there are two men on his left and on his right. And this is what Jesus meant. If, G- if John had played this out differently, John could have stood in the garden next to the soldiers and with his brother said, if you're going to take Jesus, you've got to take us too. What would the soldiers have done? Fine, come along. All right, we'll take all three of you. They take all three of them off to Caiaphas. Caiaphas says, this man is worthy of death. And the two sons of thunder say, he is not. He deserves to be recognized as our savior. What would Caiaphas have done to those two guys? Off with all three of you to Pilate. They would have gone to Pilate. Pilate would have seen two guys right there next to Jesus the entire time. I'm not talking to you guys. And they would have said, you're talking to him. You're talking to us. And so then Pilate says to Jesus, I'm going to wash my hands of you. These two were so identified with Jesus' sufferings that Pilate would have gone, you know what? We got three crosses set up anyway. Why don't we take all three of you and just go? And so then James and John could have been two sons of thunder hanging next to Jesus. And as Jesus hung there with these two men who were identifying with him, he would have looked to his left and to his right. And he would have said, well done, my good and faithful servants. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Here's what we're being called to. If you and I want to sit at Jesus' right and left, we need to first be willing to hang at his right and his left. Jesus is inviting us into this suffering. 
And he's saying, every time you suffer, you are drinking the cup again, not a cup providing the salvation, but a suffering in solidarity with the one who is. And as James and John could have entered into that, they didn't have the strength to do it in the moment. And Jesus knew they were going to struggle because we all do. And so Jesus says, okay, you guys aren't necessarily willing to hang with me, but this invitation of the cup is one in which I want you to embrace a life of suffering. So then Jesus sees these guys who should have been willing to embrace the cup all of a sudden get into another fight. So now the fight breaks out between the disciples and these two brothers saying, who are you to ask to sit at the right and the left? And Jesus actually sees these guys, instead of embracing a cop, almost start throwing haymakers at each other. And in verse 25, it says, when the 10 heard about, verse 24, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them together and said, all right, guys, sit down. Let me tell you. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is saying is, you are going to suffer passively, but even when you're not, I want you to engage actively in coming alongside people who are suffering. Rather than sitting in seats of lording it over them in judgment, I want you to serve to the point where you are enslaved to people as an obligation to come alongside them in their suffering and serve them in every way. And in so doing, you will be living out the life of Jesus Christ by serving through your suffering others who are suffering. And in so doing... The Lord is saying, this is your opportunity that you can live like me by either accepting the sufferings I bring or actively pursuing the ones by serving those who are most needed. Jesus is a brilliant teacher and he knows the guys still aren't going to get it. So many times it's, it's more caught than taught. And so what Jesus, in his sovereignty, he knows exactly where they're going. Here's the path to Jerusalem. He knows who they are going to come up next to. And so Jesus gives them an opportunity to actually live out the very teaching that he just gave them about serving and being willing to come alongside someone who's suffering in the very next story. In verse 29, it says this, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. So here's two suffering men who had been blind for a long time, and Jesus brings his caravan of disciples right next to those guys. Who was in the crowd that rebuked? The two blind men, well, the two sons of thunder were right along with it. Now, they could have actively, actually been the ones rebuking those two blind men. And they could have been actively telling them to be quiet and don't bother our Savior. Or, if we get them the benefit of the doubt, they were just passive like they were with their mom, kind of standing back, letting others be the voice piece of rebuke. But they're standing behind there, giving their full approval to it. Either way, 
Neither of them entered into the suffering of the two blind men. And Jesus, pausing for a moment, do you think he looked John in the eyes? And after pausing to look him in the eyes, then went and embraced the suffering of these two blind men and healed them. Jesus is calling us to serve. He says, enter into the suffering of others. And in so doing, you will be drinking the cup. As Katie and I were listening to Johnny Erickson Tata continue to convey her story, she said those first few months were miserable. She said, I was in such anguish of soul that I didn't even want to live. And she said, I was laying in this care facility and it was one of those that had multiple beds of patients in the old days. They used to do it that way. And as she was laying there, it was dark. It was late at night. She says, I, I didn't even want to weep because there was nobody that would, that would help me. She said, as I was laying there, I looked over at the doorway to the room and she, saw, she said, I saw a silhouette of a person standing there. Now, it was far too dark in her room and far too bright in the hallway for her to make out who it was, but her best guess is that it was just a female somewhere about her age standing in the silhouette of the doorway. And she's looking over in that direction, and, and all of a sudden she said she saw the strangest thing, that whoever that person was dropped it down to the floor on their hands and knees and just disappeared. She goes, I'm looking over there, and I, I can't see because of the beds, but that person just, just went down onto their hands and knees and disappeared. She said, in the silence of the room, I could hear the rustling on the floor. Whoever this was, was crawling on their hands and knees to me. And she said, the sound was getting louder, that this person was clearly coming to my bed. And she's laying there, and she hears the rustling right next to her bed, and it stopped right here. She looked over, and up from the side rails of her bed comes this little face, and it was the face of her best friend, Jackie. She said, my best friend Jackie had snuck into the care facilities after hours and had gotten down on her hands and knees so that she wouldn't get caught by anybody else in the room and made her way all the way to Johnny's bed and came up to her and smiled at her. Johnny's relaying it that she's looking at Jackie and sees that smile. And just for a moment, they share this silence that Jackie was with Johnny in her sufferings. So then Jackie, after a moment, she starts to sing. She doesn't say anything. She just starts to sing. And she sings a praise song to her Lord that after a while, Johnny had the ability to sing along with her. And she said, the two of us started singing this song of praise to the Lord. And when Jackie heard her best friends start to sing, Jackie in her power took a hold of Johnny's hand who had no power and she lifted it up into the air. And together they raised their hands in worship to their Lord. Johnny was powerless to do that. She had no desire to even do it. And yet Jackie's love and solidarity in her suffering gave Johnny the strength to praise her God that night. And as they sang, Johnny said this. She said, it didn't solve my paralysis. It didn't answer all of my questions. But she said, for a moment, all of those questions seemed a little less significant because I was worshiping my Lord. 
as you and I have the opportunity to enter into someone else's sufferings, we are drinking the cup of our Savior. We are serving them in a way that will draw them to our Savior. And that as we do, we are going to suffer with them. We are going to feel their pain. And yet in so doing together, we are collectively going to be lifting our souls up to our Savior, showing the world around us of his great glory. And then as you suffer in the quietness of your own heart, know that your Savior is right there saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, because soon you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is calling us to drink that cup. And as we drink that cup, we will see God's sufferings work greatly in the lives of those around us. And as we do, we will feel the closeness of our Savior, perhaps like never before. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.